This is The Guardian. Today, how two rival military leaders turn Sudan into a war zone. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As the Sudanese army clashes with paramilitary forces, waves of violence have spread throughout the country. Its capital city, Khartoum, is under siege. It is terrifying. The city is kind of, it's a ghost city, basically. It's completely empty. There were bodies on the streets. Nobody even covered them. Zainab Mohamed Saleh is reporting for The Guardian from Sudan. We don't have electricity and there is um, shortage of water and other essentials, food and medicine. I was trying to get medicine for my little brother and the pharmacy were all closed yesterday. Half of the city's hospitals, already short on supplies, are being forced to evacuate. I went to Umdurman Teaching Hospital yesterday and, you know, the hospital was devastating. The doctors were telling me they received more than 300 people since the beginning of the, of the war. And they were telling me that people could not come immediately after getting shot at for fear of their safety. So they stayed at home and some of them were bleeding until death. At the hospital, I learned that some of the soldiers, they also stayed at home to change their uniform and come with civilian clothes. They are worried that the other troops would come and attack them. Yesterday saw a new attempt to broker a ceasefire while civilians are desperately trying to flee Khartoum. army has started taking over many roads. When we tried to cross to our place, they started raising the gun, then we ran away. As foreign governments try to get their citizens out, the UN said more than 200 people have been killed and thousands more have been injured. Fighting is actually going in heart of the city. That's why it's kind of really, really shocking to the people of Khartoum. So people are experiencing the fighting and they're hearing the heavy gunfire. And some of them, actually, their houses had been attacked, had been hit by shells. <laughs> Civilians got caught between crossfires and they start leaving the city. People have been sharing on social media on the safest passages to get out of Khartoum. At the heart of the conflict, there is a power struggle between two generals, each in control of two warring armies. And once again, the country's people are at the mercy of military powers. From The Guardian, I'm Nashi Iqbal. Today in Focus, the people caught in the crossfire 
as violence explodes in Sudan. Nesreen Malik, you're a Guardian journalist. You were born in Sudan, where you have lived and worked. Can you tell me about when you first heard the news that violence was erupting in the streets of Khartoum? It was Saturday morning that I began to see some tweets and posts on my social media and messages from family and friends back home saying that they were hearing machine gun fire and heavy artillery and had seen smoke billowing on the horizon um, in certain parts of Khartoum. And initially, I didn't think much of it for a couple of reasons. The first was, you just don't think that a place is going to break down so quickly. But the second thing is that people in Sudan or people who are Sudanese have been in a state of high vigilance and alert for a few years now, where it was just this sense that things were kind of always going to be tense, but never really come to a head. But they did. And what are you hearing from people who are being directly affected by this violence, people back home in Sudan? People are absolutely terrified. The speed with which this happened is quite remarkable. And that meant that people did not have time to prepare. They didn't have time to stock up food-wise. Water is running out. Electricity is running out. Phone credit is running out. Medicine is running out. All the water, all milk, everything is empty here on the refrigerator. Wow. See, everything is colors. Nothing left. Food stock is not available. So hospitals have already begun to run out of supplies. They've begun to run out of power, of fuel for their generators, which means, distressingly, that people in intensive care, babies in incubators, those are the ones that are beginning to either struggle or perish because there's just not enough power to keep these machines running. So that's the first sign of distress. But the second sign of distress is that it's just very difficult to get to these hospitals in the first place because you're terrified of driving around the street because you don't want to get a stray bullet at you or even a a non-stray bullet. And there's one very distressing example of students stuck uh, on, on a university campus where one of their friends had got shot and they couldn't get him help and so he perished and then then they couldn't even get him to his family or even a local mosque. They had to bury him on campus. These are people who were sitting in a lecture hall waiting for their professor to turn up and three days later they're still stuck in that lecture hall burying one of their friends on campus. On a neighbourhood level, the situation has devolved so quickly that members of the rapid support forces are themselves running out of resources so they are now going into individual houses sometimes kicking the people out and just taking over the house and squatting in it and it's also ramadan right which is supposed to be the holiest month it's you know a period of quiet of reflection of peace Nezreen, what are you hearing specifically from friends and family about how they're coping? It's not only Ramadan, it's the last 10 days of Ramadan, which are the holiest and the ones that people are supposed to dedicate to reflection and worship. And there is a lot of, amongst friends and family, a lot of bitterness around that time becoming hijacked by such violence. And there's also a real sense of surreal horror that 
around the time of breakfast, the machine gun fire actually stops for about half an hour to an hour regularly because the troops are stopping to break their fast, which is just very difficult to get your head around that, you know, in the middle of this incredibly violent confrontation, there is a moment where people put their guns down and have a date and have a sip of water before they pick the guns up again and shoot their fellow citizens. It just seems so unfathomable and so at odds with what the month is about. Nesrin, can you tell me a bit more about where the fighting is taking place and how it's affecting the city? This fighting has happened kind of across the country, but mostly concentrated in a dramatic fashion in the capital city of Khartoum. And it's a very specific kind of urban environment in that it is a kind of vast, sprawling city. It has a lot of compact, densely put together buildings. So lots of bungalows, lots of two, three-story houses. It's a generally poorly planned city in that the airport and several important government buildings, in particular the army headquarters, are right in the middle of the city. And they are nestled alongside residential areas. And so one missile strike that is a couple of meters wrong either end is not going to land in an empty space. It's going to land in a home or a school. So it's a very intimate cheek by jowl conflict that civilians are right in the middle of. Nezreen, as you've told us, this fighting, the bombings, the gun battles in the street, appears to have come with little warning. Can you explain what the conflict is about? The conflict is essentially about dividing the spoils between two generals. One general heads the army and the other general heads something called the Rapid Support Forces, which are a paramilitary group so an ex-military body. So between them, they, they cannot come to an agreement about who runs what and the power structure in the country, and they are both heavily armed, and that disagreement finally came to a head. So there are two figures at the centre of this violence. Can we start with General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan? What can you tell us about him and who he represents? Burhan is the leader of the country. He's the de facto president of the country. And he is, in that capacity, a continuation of the 2019 government that was felled and also a remnant of all the problems that were created in that era, which is the dominance of the military, the dominance of a small elite that took over and captured business and commercial interests. He he is the leader of the army. And so in that capacity, he has a slightly difficult job in that he needs to maintain the army's interests and the army's wider commercial interests. But then he also has to lead the country. So part of the problem with General Burhan as leader of Sudan is that he has too many jobs, shall we say. He is 
uncomfortable with the kind of public sparring that has happened over the past few months and the kind of wheeling and dealing that happens in Sudanese politics so that things keep rolling over. Because he's such a military man, he's kind of a hammer to which everything is a nail. Um, and so the solution when things are not working is a military coup, is escalation, is violence, is stamping rebellion or discord out. And what about General Mohammed Hamdan the Gallo, commonly known as Hemeti? He leads the Rapid Support Forces. So what can you tell us about him and what the RSF are? So he is technically Burhan's number two. So the way to think about it is Burhan is president and Himeti is vice president. Himeti is, in many ways, the polar opposite of what Burhan is. I'm a simple Bedouin man who grew up on the sidelines of Sudan and did not get anything from my country except violence. He is someone who came from a completely disenfranchised background, from the Sudanese hinterland in the west of the country. He is a sort of entrepreneur of violence, is how I think of him. He dropped out of school at a young age and he set about trying to make a name for himself as a businessman, a hustler, a camel trader, generally made his name in the mid-noughties during the Darfur War to become the ex-president Amr al-Bashir's sort of Praetorian guard in Darfur and in general against any sort of rebellion. Um, He was given money and he was allowed to regularize his troops into a paramilitary force, the RSF, that then became incorporated under the umbrella of the government, but fighting separately and alongside the army against the Sudanese people. Hemeti is kind of folksy. He's very plain speaking. He's a very unusual figure, but also a figure that has managed to create a huge amount of influence and money and power entirely outside the auspices of government and of state. When he emerged after the 2019 revolution and people realized that hiding behind Bashir was this extremely powerful person that had managed to accumulate so much influence, the army who had always treated the RSF and Hemeti as a sort of junior partner that they could deploy and withdraw from different conflicts realised that he was now an equal and maybe even a superior force and they had to reckon with him. Nesmi, let's go back to that moment in 2019 because the downfall of dictator Umar al-Bashir marked such a hopeful moment for Sudan. We turn now to Sudan, where the military has overthrown Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, who's ruled Sudan for the past 30 years. The protesters, who had been out on the streets for weeks, called it a revolution, and the army promised a transfer of power to the civilian government within two years. What happened? 
what happened was the army and the RSF decided that the civilians were just hampering their ability to split the cake between them. So they moved against them. Developing story out of Sudan where a military takeover is in progress. Just within the past few hours, the head of the armed forces dissolved the joint military-civilian government, declared a state of emergency and announced elections for 2023. He spoke after Sudan... They were going to tell the civilians, you know, when they could be in power, what sort of toothless position they could have, um, as opposed to exist in a real partnership. The army and the RSF could not relinquish the power that they had. They could not relinquish it sufficiently enough for there to be enough space for a civilian or even plausible joint venture between the civilians and these two parties. Did they expect that this would be an indefinite sort of power sharing between the two? Was there any expectation that, okay, or promises that we'll hold elections at at such and such point? Or was this agreement designed to just be there for as long as they felt they could get away with it? I don't think they had any idea how long it would last. I think that both parties are in a sort of last scene of Reservoir Dogs scenario in that they both had a gun at each other's heads and knew that if one pulled the trigger, then the other one was potentially going to perish as well. I don't think there was any plan really other than they would try and work it out because not working it out was a nightmare scenario for everyone, including themselves, because it means a pause to their commercial, economic and power accumulating plans. But it's clear that finally they couldn't resolve that and they resorted to the worst case scenario, which is to take arms up against each other. So the conflict between the two generals has been simmering for quite some time. Can you explain what happened in the run-up to fighting breaking out? There was a sort of regret about the coup and a determination that the army and the RSF were going to reintegrate Sudan back into the international community and they were going to reintegrate the civilians that they had kicked out of government back into government. The closer the final agreement came it became clear that for this to be viable, the army and the RSF had to make voluntary concessions of power, not only to each other, but to the civilians. The closer that moment approached, it became clear they weren't going to do it. And that then fed into a war of words, an escalation, and it appears that the RSF had made the first move because... In the early hours of the conflict, the RSF was in the airport in Khartoum, had already taken over the runways, had moved straight to the broadcast building of the TV and radio in Sudan, and had moved troops significantly in the 48 hours preceding the first shots being fired. But at this point, both sides are accusing each other of firing that first shot and claiming that they are merely defending their position as opposed to attacking the other. Coming up, 
Could the conflict in Sudan slide into a full-scale civil war? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Nazreen, for obvious reasons, it's difficult to get an accurate picture of how exactly this conflict is unfolding. Even the death toll can't be fully confirmed because the fighting is so intense. What can you tell us about how things stand at the moment? Things seem pretty out of control at the moment. It's been several days now since the conflict started. Bodies are piling up in the streets and even in people's homes and in hospitals, there have been rumours and talk of there being humanitarian corridors or even a ceasefire, as said by Hemeti on Twitter, that he would accept a ceasefire and Burhan denies that that was ever the case. Burhan also has told other media outlets that he is open to negotiating a ceasefire. So, There's a lot of confusion. What was supposed to be a 24-hour ceasefire in Sudan lasted just minutes before residents say they heard gunfire and explosions starting up again, fighting between the countries. It is clear that whatever they're saying to international media about their openness to a ceasefire, their openness to negotiation, how they didn't fire the first shot, how they really care about the civilian population, how they are there to protect them is all to be taken with a pinch of salt because these are the things you say to the international media and to the international community when you're in the middle of starting a civil war. 
Nasreen, how has the international community responded to what is happening? The international community has responded with alarm and concern. There's lots of foreign interests in Sudan. China has uh, a huge presence in Sudan commercially. Russia has, as part of its expansion into Africa, a big partnership with the Sudanese government, um, one that even predates the 2019 revolution. And the EU also has a relationship with Himeti in that there was a funding of an anti-migration movement scheme where Himeti was given money to stem the flow of immigrants from Sudan to Europe. And the UK, the EU, the US have all been quite interested in getting this agreement across the line. But the mistake that was made, and I think why the response to the conflict has been alarm and confusion and condemnation, is that there was a naive view on the part of the international community that the RSF and the army could ever come to a rational agreement and could ever govern in the interest of the Sudanese people. Do you think any one foreign power could have influence in bringing this conflict to an end? Not at the moment. I don't think a foreign power has enough leverage and enough influence in Sudan to either issue a strong enough threat or a strong enough inducement for these parties to stop. Now, one of the problems with being a poor country like Sudan that has been isolated from the international community due to sanctions and a terror blacklist is that there are very few links to a wider international economy where sanction, condemnation, stigma, stopping trade deals, closing off ports, etc. will have a huge impact on the country. Nazarene, all the reports so far have been describing what we're seeing as an eruption of violence. But from what you say, there is no easy end in sight. Is there a possibility that this will descend into a full-scale civil war? I guess the best way to describe it is it is a falling out of two armies, one private and paramilitary and one official. The worst case scenario is that these two parties do not have the capacity to decisively dominate each other. It doesn't seem to me that it looks like one really dominates the other, right? The army has one advantage over the RSF, which is air power. But the RSF has a lot of heavy artillery and a lot of heavy tanks that are enough for them to be able to destroy the military HQ. So the worst case scenario is that it just bleeds out for days and weeks and months because no one party is decisively stronger than the other. And in that bleed, Sudan is destroyed. By the time their resources run out, the country might lie in ruin. The power struggle between these two military leaders is causing brutal chaos. But military rule does seem pretty ingrained in the history of Sudan. So what hope is there that a democratic civilian government could at some point in the future take control? I remember sitting in this very studio in 2019 after the revolution happened and speaking to Today in Focus 
and being very emotional about the fact that I had lost hope and the Sudanese people had proved me wrong. And it seemed at the time that it was a triumph of something that we had always been told or convinced ourselves as Sudanese people since 1989 when this military dictatorship came to power, which was the, op- the alternative is worse and you better stick with these guys and the Sudanese people need to resign themselves that a kind of mi- an extractive military Islamo borderline fascist government is the best they can do. And in 2019, it became clear that the Sudanese people knew that they could do better and that they deserved better. And I remember sitting in this room thinking, I did not think this was going to happen. I did not believe in us anymore. And it happened. And I am now back four years later thinking, no, actually, maybe I was right. And maybe we are stuck in these patterns forever in Sudan at the mercy of military forces and cynical warlords who just want to run the country in their own interest. That doesn't mean that's how it should be. The hope is there. The hope is there. But it has to coexist with the despair that it might never happen. But the despair never extinguishes that hope. Nesreen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Guardian columnist Nezreen Malik and Zainab Mohamed Saleh from Khartoum. My thanks to both of them. You can read all of Zainab's reporting from Sudan and the latest on this story at theguardian.com forward slash world forward slash Sudan. Before you go, a quick recommend for The Guardian's new podcast series, Cotton Capital, which traces the paper's links to transatlantic slavery. Episode three is out now and you can find it wherever you found this podcast. And that's it for today. I'm Nasheen, and this episode was produced by Natalie Khatena, Ellie Lazaridis, and Eli Block. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo, and the executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.